This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Brigand. When it comes to working out the origins and evolutions of various fantasy tropes, which is what we do around here in case you somehow haven't figured that out by now, when it comes to figuring out the origins of fantasy tropes, it's easy to fall into a couple of pretty big traps. The first trap is that things can look pretty similar even if they are completely unrelated to each other. And the second is that things can look pretty different from each other despite being very closely related. And part of what causes both traps is that most of our fantasy tropes represent a modern take on some pretty old ideas, but as time passes, we see things in a different light. Last week, for example, we explained how highwaymen and footpads, thieves who accosted travelers and stole their stuff, went from a criminal menace to a romantic anti-hero, a scoundrel with a heart of gold. This week, we have a related word. The word is brigand. But hold on, let's not jump ahead, because when it comes to not being misled by similarities, we take our cues from linguists. After all, it's usually linguistics that helps anthropologists and historians track the movement and evolution of cultural ideas. And that's pretty much what we tried to do in our own armchair amateur entertaining way, too. Well, linguists have this phrase, false friends. It's a colloquial term for a bilingual homophone. Homophones are, of course, two words that sound the same but mean different things like there and there and two and two and sail and sail and way and way and all sorts of other examples that are totally pointless to list because this is an audio production and you can't hear the difference between homophones. That's the point. The bilingual part comes from the Latin prefix bi meaning two and lingua meaning tongue or language. Bilingual homophones, false friends, are two different words from two different languages that sound very similar but have very different meanings. For example, you might be forgiven for thinking the English word embarrassed has anything to do with the Spanish word embarazada. But if you come home from a high school party at which you'd committed a devastating social faux pas and told your mother you were embarazada, she'd probably be very distressed because embarazada means pregnant. And if you're trying to impress a group of local goths by bragging about how brave you were in battle, well, they might not be very impressed because brave in German means well-behaved and honest, not brave. You want to tell them you were mutig. And sure, it's pretty bad accidentally coming home from a party pregnant instead of humiliated, or having a bunch of barbarians laughing at you for being such a good boy in battle. None of that compares to how embarrassed you'd be if you were putting out a podcast on the internet for a bunch of sci-fi and fantasy nerds and got some word etymology wrong. We'd rather be embarazada, honestly. And the word brigand? Well, that's just begging for you to screw up the etymology. Because it's awful close to the word brigandine armor. And it's also really darn close to a very famous tribe of Celtic sellouts called the Brigantes. And considering the word brigand refers to a member of a gang who lives by plunder, pillage, robbery, and ransom, it's hard to see exactly what that might have to do with a suit of 14th century footman's armor, or with a Celtic warrior tribe from England who made peace with the Romans, 
and sabotage the freedom efforts of neighboring tribes. But it's also easy to imagine how those ideas might be related. So let's start way back in jolly old England, a long, long time ago. By the way, have you ever wondered why we call it jolly old England? Well, jolly England was actually another way of saying merry old England. It goes all the way back to the year 1129 when English clergyman and poet Henry of Huntingdon wrote the definitive word on the history of England up to that point, Historia Anglorum. Well, we say up to that point, but he didn't stop in 1129. After the end of the reign of Henry I of England in 1135, he published a new volume to cover the six years that had occurred since the first book. And he kept doing that up until 1154 when Henry II came to power and he published what was then the fifth volume of his series. And then he died before he could add any more. At some point, he used the phrase Anglia plena jocus in his book. That's Latin for England is full of fun. We're not sure why. It was the Middle Ages. Nothing was full of fun. But that phrase passed into an encyclopedia of the day as England is full of mirth and game. That phrase kept getting passed around in church literature through the 14th and 15th centuries, and it seemed at the time to refer to the large number of festivals, games, and celebrations that the English folk filled their year with, many of which were holdovers from Old Celtic and other pagan traditions, which had been absorbed into the Christian life there. But the idea of Merry England might have died out if it hadn't been revived during the political conflicts that racked England throughout the 1600s, and then the hardships of the Industrial Revolution, and ultimately got into the hands of the Romantics, who started using the phrase as Merry Old England to refer to the fact that wasn't life just so much better way back when it was all just pastoral, idyllic, easy living? Speaking of Celtic traditions, we were about to talk about the Brigantes. See, back around the beginning of the first millennium CE, Britain was home to a number of Celtic tribes. Among them was a confederation of tribes known as the Brigantes. They had taken their name from the goddess Brigantia, which means the High Goddess, and she may be related to the Irish mythological figure Saint Brigid. They were the people of Brigid. And at the time of this particular story that we're telling, that is, around 40 CE, they were ruled by Queen Cartamandua, and they had a pretty well-ordered stable society as societies went at that time. In 43 CE, though, their stability was threatened by the Roman Empire. See, the Romans had, by that time, pretty much conquered most of the Western world, as they saw it, and they'd gotten rich. But they'd also had some trouble. Germanic barbarians had destroyed a couple of their legions. Oh, and they'd just gotten rid of an emperor whose second major act in office was to be driven seriously insane by a devastating fever, and whose insanity caused him to adopt policies that ranged from the wastefully extravagant to the utterly bizarre. Seriously, one of his projects involved the construction of a two-mile bridge made of actual merchant ships so he could gallop his horse back and forth across it for a week, and his brutal military campaign across Europe to the English Channel, so his soldiers could plunder the sea by gathering all the seashells they could carry in their helmets. And his mantra was, I'm the emperor, 
I can do anything to anyone. And he was constantly proving he could do anything to anyone by chasing senators he didn't like in his chariot. Fortunately, for pretty much everyone, Gaius Germanicus, a.k.a. Caligula, died of adult-onset assassination. But it left a power vacuum. And the only one who was eligible to fill it was a relatively unknown, unpopular member of the imperial family. And the Senate, who had gotten an earful of I'm the Emperor, I don't have to listen to anyone, were actually wondering if maybe it wasn't time to go back to that whole Democratic Republic thing that they used to do before Julius Caesar came along. So, when Claudius took the throne, he had to do something big and glorious. Something to win over the hearts of the Roman people. And with nothing else to conquer, and nowhere else to plunder, he decided, well, let's just take over England. And so the Roman conquest of England began. Cartamandua was a savvy queen, and she knew that the Romans were powerful. But she also knew that they mostly left local peoples alone if they pledged loyalty to the empire. At best, a regional governor would be appointed to oversee a few things. So she immediately entered into a treaty with Emperor Claudius. Unfortunately, some of the other Celtic tribes didn't like that idea so much. Neither did some of the Brigantes themselves. And chief among the people who didn't like it was a Celtic warlord named Caractacus, or Caradoc. Same name, different languages. Caractacus organized a bunch of other tribes and gave the Romans what hell he could. For a while. Because it turns out, the Romans had conquered all of Europe by actually being pretty good at the whole war thing. So Caractacus finds himself fleeing from the Romans with most of his army dead or routed, and he runs straight to the Brigantes to raise a new army. Now, Cartamandua had had some problems. Anti-Roman sentiment was pretty high among her own people, and she'd had a few rebellions to put down. And she'd had to call on her new allies, the Romans, to help her put down those rebellions. And they had. So she couldn't have Caractacus hiding out in her lands raising an army to fight the Romans. Either she'd end up with another rebellion on her hands, or the Romans would attack her land to get Caractacus, or she'd be accused of harboring him. And so Cartamandua had Caractacus arrested and turned him over to the Romans. And that just made the anti-Roman sentiment in Brigantium even worse. In fact, it got so bad that Cartamandua's own husband, Venusius, started two separate rebellions and tried to overthrow her himself. The rebellions didn't take, but the couple worked it out, stayed together and ruled together. For about ten more years. Then Cartamandua left Venutius for his friend and assistant, Volocatus, and Venutius started another rebellion. And at this point, the war for Britain had become so chaotic that the Romans couldn't send Cartamandua any help. Venutius succeeded, Cartamandua was overthrown, and the Brigantes went to war with Rome. And lost. And that was the end of the Brigantes. Now, just as Cartamandua proved to be a false friend to Caractacus and betrayed him to the Romans, so too are the tribal name Brigantes and the word brigand. They have nothing to do with each other. Which means, by the process of elimination, that the word brigand must share an origin with brigandine armor. 
And yes, it does. Brigandine armor is a form of Middle Ages body armor. It's basically a canvas or leather garment worn over the torso that has small armored steel plates riveted to it. It's basically a refinement of a similar type of armor called Jack of Plates. Jack is just a word for coat, like jacket. A piece of outerwear worn over the torso, and you can probably guess why it's called that. And modern flak jackets and ballistic vests, called bulletproof vests by the uninitiated, are based on the same design. Brigandine armor is actually based on an Asian design, and it came to Europe around about 1240 when the Mongols invaded Hungary. And the armor became extremely popular in Eastern Europe. And by the end of the 13th century, it was popular everywhere in Europe. See, it was lighter, cheaper, and easier to make than the plate armors of the day. And it was flexible. So it was popular among foot soldiers who valued its mobility and who didn't come from the noble classes and couldn't afford to buy a suit of armor, but could afford to rivet some metal bits into their leather jackets. In fact, it was easy enough to make passable brigandine armor that soldiers could make and repair on their own. So it was commonly used by skirmishers and men-at-arms. The DIY nature of brigandine armor, along with the belief that the flexible suit of armor could be concealed under other bits of clothing, has led to the belief that it was the preferred armor of bandits, outlaws, and brigands. And that's why brigands are called brigands, because of their preference for concealed brigandine. But that's not true either. Sorry, it's another one of those false friend ideas. It sounds good, but it ain't true. But it is true that brigandine and brigand have the same linguistic root. In fact, they come from the same Italian word, brigare. It's the same word we get brigade from, by the way. And it means to skirmish, to fight. Brigandine armor is called that because it was worn by skirmishers and foot soldiers. And brigands are called brigands because they were skirmishers and foot soldiers. In fact, brigands weren't necessarily criminals at all. Except sometimes they were. Today, we understand brigandry to refer to the practice of living in an outlaw band and raiding and plundering and kidnapping for ransom. That's what brigands do, right? Well, unfortunately, throughout the early Middle Ages, that was also what unattached soldiers did. You probably remember from our episode about mercenaries that after the fall of the Roman Empire, there were a lot of unemployed soldiers, with no mad emperors keeping them busy gathering seashells and conquering England. And they lived by raiding and plundering. So the problem is that through much of European history, it's kind of hard to draw a line between a soldier and a raider. Plundering and raiding was just what soldiers did. It's how war paid for itself. But brigands aren't just soldiers. They're skirmishers and guerrilla fighters. They tend to rely on hit-and-run tactics, and they prefer terrain in which they can hide, in which they can evade the enemy. And they use plunder, extortion, and the ransom of prisoners to support their efforts against enemies. And in a lot of cases, those strategies ended up being a last resort for people who have been the victims of a hostile invading force. Beyond that, you also had military groups who, after the war had been lost, refused to give up the cause. So-called irreconcilables continued to fight their enemies even after peace had ostensibly been reached. And so, the line between criminal brigand and legitimate soldier is necessarily a muddy one. Brigandry as both a criminal vocation and as a method of unofficial warfare 
was extremely common throughout Europe and especially in the forests of England. Where the terrain favors such tactics and where the political situation got increasingly messy as time went on. In the foothills and mountains of Spain, where the terrain favors such tactics and where peasant revolts against wealthy landlords became increasingly common in the 16th and 17th centuries. And in Italy, which was pretty much in a constant state of petty bickering between extremely wealthy city-states and tiny kingdoms who all had virtually no power beyond their own borders and couldn't pursue criminals who got a spitting distance away from them. In fact, brigandry pretty much owes all of its fame to Italy. And it really became a well-known phenomenon and the word came into common usage during the Napoleonic Wars. Hopefully, you'll remember that following the undoing of the French Revolution, an emperor named Napoleon Bonaparte ended up ruling France. Go back to our episode about grognards if you don't. And he was so progressive and had such great ideas about reform that he decided he was going to progress and reform the heck out of all of Europe if he had to kill every last person to do it. Thus, the Napoleonic Wars started. Napoleon versus pretty much everyone else. And that brings us to southern Italy, to the Kingdom of Naples, and the two Sicilies. Now, you probably know that Sicily is an island off the coast of southern Italy. And you might know that Naples is, today, a city in southern Italy, which is also known as Napoli. Now, for various complicated political reasons, these two entities, Naples and the island of Sicily, often found themselves in political union. In fact, right before Italy was unified into one kingdom, the joint entity of Naples and Sicily was the largest unified state in the Italian peninsula. Before about 1280 CE, they were a joint entity called Sicily. That is, the name of the kingdom that encompassed both the island and the mainland city and the region around it was the kingdom of Sicily. But then there was an internal war, and ultimately the island of Sicily fell into the control of the House of Barcelona, while the mainland portion around the city of Naples remained under the control of its king, Charles I. Charles refused to give up the title Kingdom of Sicily, even though the island of Sicily was no longer a part of the kingdom. And so, there were two Sicilies. Fast forward a few centuries, and Naples and Sicily entered into alliances, unified again, fell apart, and did this whole will-there-won't-they-Ross-and-Rachel thing for a long time. And during that time, whenever they were united, they were nicknamed the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. And now, going into the Napoleonic War, they were on again. And so, the Kingdom of Naples and the island of Sicily were the two Sicilies again. So now we get to the era of the French Revolution, and the king of the two Sicilies was a Bourbon man named Ferdinand IV. He considered himself pretty enlightened, and he instituted a policy of social reforms to modernize the states in the spirit of enlightened despotism. Yeah, if that sounds fishy, that's because it was. And when the middle class and the scholars and clergy started to hear about the democratic and republican ideas coming out of the French Revolution, they called BS on the whole affair. And Ferdinand didn't take that well. And the rebels took to the hills. Literally. And they started a pretty serious campaign of brigandry. Plunder, kidnapping, murder, the whole shebang. 
to basically drive Ferdinand out of power. Ferdinand held out for a while, and then those darn Napoleonic Wars showed up, and the revolutionaries of Naples were happy to side with the French forces. The Kingdom of Naples was claimed by France, and Ferdinand fled to Sicily. Napoleon declares Naples independent, installed an allied king to reform and modernize Naples, and moves on to other things. Meanwhile, Ferdinand and his loyalists started their own campaigns to retake Naples, which was pretty much a brigandry campaign itself. And what followed was the start of a tradition of people resorting to brigandry in the two Sicilies, which would become the official name of the kingdom in a few years, at pretty much the drop of a hat. The region became synonymous with brigandry. It was just what they did. Didn't like the latest social reform? Grab a gun, head for the hills. Social reform overturned? Grab a gun, head for the hills. An attempt to unify all of Italy as one kingdom? Grab a gun, you get it. Italy, especially the two Sicilies, and brigandry went together like spaghetti and meatballs. And depending on which side you were on, the brigands were either plundering criminals or freedom fighter foot soldiers. And as warfare became more civilized and the world entered into a modern era, this presented a complicated legal problem. As rules and laws and treaties were established around warfare, the question of how to treat brigands became a complicated one. Were they legitimate soldiers, and were they therefore due the legal protection of soldiers when captured? Or were they merely criminals who should be treated as any civilian criminal might be under the local law? And many countries had to establish standards to distinguish between the two. Those were often based on evidence such as evidence of organization and chain of command and a willingness to lay down arms once the actual war was over. Because when it comes to justice, as when it comes to etymology, you have to be careful not to fall into the trap of assuming two things are the same just because they look the same, or of assuming two things are different just because they don't. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.